Welcome to the Naked Innovation Podcast, where we feature leaders in enterprise innovation for honest discussions about what works, what doesn't, and what the future looks like. Each episode is brought to you by the team at Naked Ambition. At Naked Ambition, we teach the habits of innovation to corporate mavericks so they can lead their company into new territory. Welcome to this episode of Naked Innovation. This is your host, Fiona Triarca, the founder of Naked Ambition. In this episode, I'm really happy to be chatting with Heath Brown from ComBank. He is the executive director of the ComBank Innovation Lab, which is responsible for developing strategies and programs to make innovation accessible for the bank's staff, for their business clients, and also for the broader community. The programs that they run are aimed at building out world-class innovation capabilities and also thriving innovation culture within ComBank. They then share these assets, which include any IP developed within the lab, programming content, learning, even business plans, and some of their expertise from the team in there with the broader business community. Heath's background himself spans across roles in go-to-market strategy, sales leadership, sales strategy, and even institutional advisory, where he previously was also consulting, focusing on innovation strategy between 2016 till now. Outside of corporate, Heath is an elite sporting coach and he has a passion for driving greater participation and equality for women in sport. I really enjoy this conversation with Heath and I hope you do as much as we did. Um, He's so genuine and honest about what really works when it comes to innovation and the methodologies that they're using and what doesn't. And also I have to apologise in advance for some of the sound in a couple of parts where we lost signal. But anyway, we really hope you enjoy. Again, thank you so much, Heath, for joining us here on the Naked Innovation podcast. It's fantastic to have you on. Um, and yeah, we're really looking forward to a good conversation. Likewise. So Heath, you are the an executive director within ComBank's Innovation Lab. You've got the CBA Innovation Lab has bases in London, Hong Kong, Sydney. You've been touring all over Australia for the last 12 or even more months. Do you want to just kick off by telling us a bit more about the sort of work that you're really doing, you and the team are doing in the lab over there, the methods you're using, some partnerships, and and even if you're able to, tell us a little bit about some of the the innovation that's coming out. Yeah, sure. Um, So as you mentioned, we've got bases now in uh, Sydney where we started off two and a half years ago. Mm. We've grown in the last 12 months into Hong Kong and London. Uh, which was all about making sure we capture innovation happening globally with the intent really to to make sure we're bringing that back home. And lastly, we've started a tour and we're three quarters of the way through it, which we call the Pop-Up Lab, which essentially has seen us touch down in all the capital cities and run some of our programs that would naturally normally only happen in Sydney. But we obviously want to make sure that we reach more of our staff and more businesses around Australia with whatever assets that we have. So with that in mind, I guess the as a kind of headline piece, the programs we run are designed to make sure any staff member in CBA or any business client that we bank has access to the investment that we've made in innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of classify that as access to our innovation assets, whether they be people, spaces, physical spaces, 
or the guts of it really is programming. And we offer roughly around the 25, roughly around 25 programs that are designed to make sure those people are connected to innovation. So in terms of what that looks like when we're actually in doing innovation, we've got toolkits, just like any process. So there's a couple that we kind of lean more towards, which are now widely being used across corporate Australia, but we've been using the tools now for roughly five years. So that's design thinking, uh, which we mix together with experimentation. So design thinking obviously came out of academia, originally the design world a long time before that, and experimentation came out of the lean startup process model. So we've kind of mixed those two together, and we really use those methods at the early stage of our innovation process. Um, and then once we get to a build stage, if we're building new technology or experimenting with new technology, we use agile methodology, um, mm. which is a toolkit that cool engineers use to get <laughs> to market as quickly as possible. Yep. So those three methods are kind of the, the core tools of trade mm-hmm. uh, of innovation at CBA. Then I guess the next part is who does innovation. So outside of our innovation lab team, we make sure that those tools are accessible group-wide. So innovation happens in all four corners of our offices, not just in lab. And so, so that's our way of making sure that everyone in the group can not only come up with ideas but take their ideas to the next stage, whatever mm. that might be. And then the, the kind of next tier to that is partnering with academics or other corporates or technology companies or startups when we feel like someone else has done something cool mm-hmm. and rather than build it ourselves, let's collaborate and partner with them to either learn more or deploy their offering within our offering, if you like. We took a really different model with that. So a lot of our peers went and wanted to start collaborate with startups and tech companies, yeah. whereas we originally focused on other corporates because we really felt some big brands in Australia were doing really cool things in mm-hmm. innovation. They had a lot of assets, they had the manpower behind it, they had the investment behind it. So we took that approach of saying, why don't we collaborate and partner together by sharing resources, sharing investment, and have only more recently really moved more towards doing more with startups and technology companies, whereas our peers probably have done it in the inverse. Mm. Is there an example of one of those partnerships that you can kind of talk us through how that's worked? Anything that's recent? I'll pick a couple. So academia is really Mm -hmm. easy. So academia has a couple of ways we collaborate. One might be getting student talent into our labs. In a recent example, when we wanted to make our resident robot, (laughs) essentially it was at Sydney Airport checking Air New Zealand customers in. Mm -hmm. And the actual coding and experience that was created out of that proof concept was done entirely by work experience students, if you like, from the university sector who, you know, had talent that uh, is hard to come by in Australia, let alone in universities. So that's one example of university talent coming in and getting practical experience and us actually commercialising that in the real world with an experiment. Mm. Outside of universities with corporates, we've had experiments with uh, a shopping centre asset owner who... Mm had a real problem in attracting consumers into shopping centres with their online shopping boom, et cetera. Mm. So they wanted to try and solve the loyalty challenge in shopping centres. And so we just worked with them to experiment with 
beacon technology and push offers in mobile phone back when that was quite new mm. and that was in the early days and we ended up getting a proof of concept to experiment stage to uh, commercialization stage that solutions now in market for that operator brilliant uh, how long how long did that take end to end it actually took a long time because it was one of our first experiments mm. so you know we talk about failing i think it had like seven experiments before we even took it out into the real world. Mm. We just literally experimented with it in the lab to make sure we could iron out the big customer experience issues. Yep. And then we, after we felt like we'd ironed out most of the bugs, we took it externally in a controlled experiment uh, in one of the shopping centres that they owned. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of at the six-month mark. And I think 12 months later was when they actually had something fully fledged in market from mm. a uh, downloadable app point of view um, but it was a, a cool experience because it uh, it involved technology it involved kind of user research it involved design thinking it was kind of the full plethora of our methods being tested mm. um, with a neat ending where innovation actually happened <laughs> and you got a result just love it yeah. so i actually be really keen to to get your take or your view on the lab model itself so you know, I think in the corporate innovation community, there's there's stories of mixed success um, when it comes to lab model where people talk about um, it, you know, it starts to become all about measurement. So it's impossible to make real progress and fail anything. Or on the other side of things, it's just too isolated from the rest of the business. So it beca yeah. innovation becomes somebody else's problem. But from, you know, from what I have seen of the lab and for anyone who hasn't actually been through Combank's lab, you seem to have struck a really healthy balance between, you know, delivering a space that is driving culture that's really interactive that people can go and engage with as well as actually, and we'll get to talking about some of these in a minute, but delivering some, you know, some genuine innovation as well. So yeah. it'd be good just to get your, yeah, what's your view or what's the kind of Combank view on on that, let's yeah. start with the um, the lab model. What do you think? Yeah, I, I tend to agree with the sentiment. It can be innovation inhibiting or mm. it can be innovation accelerating. And we deliberately kind of hit pause. When we had the idea of opening an innovation lab in 2012, I think mm. it was. And we didn't open our Sydney doors until 2014. And I remember the deliberate decision. We wanted to go see internationally to see what labs were doing both here and abroad, and to really get a view of what was working well and what wasn't working so well. And I remember at the time one of our executives, um, who was the key sponsor of Labs, kind of mentioned to us, the last thing I want is innovation theatre. So I don't want people to be coming through spaces and, to, and for us to stage some kind of experience that isn't authentically actually happening in mm -hmm. the space. And so that kind of set the tone for what we went looking for. And so the, the guts of but all of our labs is garage spaces where not the innovation lab team, but anyone from the group or third parties outside of the group that we're dealing with come into those spaces and use those tools I spoke about earlier to get innovation done, no matter what stage they're at. And that is what's on show when people come and visit our lab, live experiments with emerging technology, live experiments with industry challenges, um, ideation workshops on how to create the future of a customer experience in a certain industry. It's real, it's got guts to it, and there's, you know, a, a small smidgen of theatre there where we like to show <laughs> innovations that we've done on the product side, um, but the rest of it is really about immersion. 
So that's what I think has been key in the way that we've set up the lab. And the other thing I always point to is it's actually not about the When I talked earlier about having innovation assets, customers really aren't interested in the space. It'll wow them for about 10 seconds when they're jealous of the real estate you have in Sydney CBD and how much square meterage you have. But once that kind of hype is gone, the real interest in what we've been doing is the programming assets that we've got. The fact that we run 25 different programs to try and make 55,000 people more innovative or how we connect thousands of businesses across Australia to those assets we have. So the real, I keep using the term guts, but the real guts to our innovation labs is the programs we run supported by the people and the spaces that we have. Mm. So that's the advice I'd give anyone setting up a lab. Make sure it's got depth to it. It's not just theatre you're interested in because I think your days are numbered if you're just in the business of innovation theatre. Yeah. What about measurables and targets for these kind of spaces yep. for any organisation? What is your? What can you kind of talk to there about, I don't know, whether you can mention what, what you have broadly or whether you are, how you are measured, um, but, you know, what's your view on the commercialisation of, of the work that you're doing and the experiments that you're running as well? Yeah. I um, kind of agree with both sides of the argument that we always hear thrown about, which is you can't make innovation about revenue, you can't put a dollar sign on an innovation team. But, yeah, I agree on both sides. And both sides I see as, you know, one is actually we need to make money from it. The other is if you start doing that, you, you're going to kind of, ruin the process of innovation. It's going to be manufactured. Mm. Early on, I believe the latter. <laughs> so you have to kind of take revenue off the table for a few months or years, depending on how much cashola you've invested. <laughs> but as you get more mature, and this is certainly where we're at, I personally want to be held accountable for making an impact on client side, whether that be from a revenue point of view, a market share point of view, attracting a million more customers to the ComBank app, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Um, I want to be on the hook for that because otherwise you get stuck in this cycle of, you know, coming up with lots of ideas that go nowhere and not only does that mean you're not making money but you're killing culture at the same time because mm. people watch their ideas go off into the ether and never come back. So I think uh, I say it until I'm blue in the face to our team and I say it until I'm blue in the face to, you know, revenue-generating teams within the bank, tell us how we can help you make money, whether that be through product or partnership. Um, and in the current environment, as all businesses know, if, you, if you're not turning some value over, um, eventually someone's going to come along and tap you on the shoulder and, and say, hey, <laughs> what's going on here? Start making us some money. <laughs> um, but it can't be the only thing I, I think the point is in, we're not heavily metricated on it. In fact, I was the one who begged to be metricated on okay, it. Okay, uh, to revenue. Um, but we are metricated on outputs such as, you know, how have our experiments supported industry innovation? How many experiments have we run? What was the velocity of those experiments? Did we do them quickly, rapidly, you know, getting through that fail-fast cycle and moving on to the next concept really, really quickly? Mm-hmm. So it can't be the only metric, but it, I believe it needs to have a place in the way a, a lab's measured. Yeah, good. 
Very interesting that you drove for that. Yeah. <laughs> Test me, measure me. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. It's come out of the bank. Let's go back. You talked about design thinking before. So obviously there's a lot. The Combank Innovation Lab itself is leading with this methodology or it is the primary methodology that you're using. One stat I actually heard from a CBA insider, or it might have even been one of your team, was that around or over 25% of Combank, start, Combank staff now are actually trained in design thinking. I don't know if that yeah, stat's right. bang on. That's about right. Can you tell us from, you, from, your, what's your, from your perspective, the biggest shift do you think from such a massive capability uplift? Yeah. So I think when we started at Design Thinking, it was five-ish years ago, probably even seven years ago now, actually. And its intention was not a toolkit to drive innovation. It was a toolkit to drive customer centricity. And I think that's a really important point because we had this problem that unless you were a salesperson meeting customers all day or you were a doing field research uh, through an agency, you never actually properly got the voice of the customer right in the way that we fronted the market. Uh, so the, its intent was to train, firstly, those furthest away from the customer. So we uh, trained IT teams, we trained support teams, we trained product management teams. And the intention was for those tools to force, initially, uh, them through a process that made them connect with customers. Mm. And that is the biggest legacy that uh, implementing design thinking in our organisation has left and is still kicking today. Mm. Uh, then we kind of had have strategically looked at other teams who we think might benefit from it as well and deployed that as we go. And we're now at a point of maturity where I think it's it's almost BAU. These tools are language we talk every day across mm. teams. They are tools we use direct with customers, not just internally. And so I think that's a, a really important point. Why are you implementing design thinking and how does it connect to your strategy at the time? And that was our story. Mm. But there's been a lot of learnings with design thinking along the way when it does work, when it doesn't. Mm. Uh, can you mix it with other toolkits or should it be kept pure? But all of those learnings have kind of packaged up and you know, pivoted as we've gone. Yeah. What are your biggest takeaways on that? Because obviously design thinking is not suitable for every challenge yeah. um, and for every situation and it's not going, it won't necessarily take a product right through to development. So have you got yeah. any, are there any sort of hard and fast rules that you absolutely live by yeah. or big lessons that you've had from failures? I always, we actually met with Professor Kelly, who's the founder of Design mm, Brilliant. Um, we're in the US. And I shared with him my experiences with design thinking and what the obstacles are, and he kind of agreed with me. I thought he'd protect the brand and keep it very close close to his chest, but he actually agreed with me on a couple of things. One was a mixed talk is normally something you would invoke all the time, so design thinking mixed with productivity tools or experimentation tools or strategy tools or just other tools you find on Google as you go. It's all okay because then it's not a toolkit heavily linear and heavily kind of stooped in an interconnected process. So that's the first. Mix in toolkits, play with the toolkits. You're not going to break anything. The second part is that design thinking shouldn't be thrown at every challenge. Um, I always 
have. Now it's got prominence in the group. You have executives coming to you saying, I've got this big problem and I need design thinking to fix it. And being able to step back and say, actually, you've already got some really good ideas on this space. Maybe you don't need design thinking. Maybe you need experimentation or maybe you just need to go test that in market because it doesn't always have to run down the train tracks. So I think that they're the two main lessons that I shared with the founder and he agreed with me. So <laughs> with Kelly. <laughs> awesome. Um, I actually, I want to keep going on that point of mixing design thinking with other, I mean, I know we hear a lot about mixing design thinking with lean, even probably aspects of agile, but I think you've got a, an yep. interesting take on mixing design thinking with growth mindset, which I want to touch on in just a second. But before that, um, can you just talk a little bit about the capability rollout specifically? So for say when, you know, if it was five years ago when we were talking about starting with IT support and then PMs, what? how intensive was the training that they would receive? Are we talking about kind of sheep dipping, you know, boot camps over a couple of days or are we talking about giving people the, the more extensive immersive yeah. programs? Yeah, um, it depends on your preferences, but I loved the way that we packaged up the program that you go through. Mm -hmm. I knew when I started my journey, which I was a student of the design thinking movement at CBA, mm -hmm. so I knew nothing about it before I started. I knew that to become aware, accredited, so awareness is the first stage, I had to do online courses. That took a couple of hours. I then, once I finished that, knew that if I wanted to be sound accredited, which is stage two, I had to go away and do a two-day boot camp, which we partnered with the uni to deliver that mm -hmm. and later bought the IP from them. Um, and then if I knew I, when I, at the stage I wanted to become advanced, um, there was kind of a two-month program of practical experience on real-life projects with a mentor that I had to go through to get that. So that kind of journey made it so easy for me to know where I was at and where I had to go to if I wanted to upskill mm. myself. And I compare it to other rollouts of similar size at other organisations and I felt like they were a lot less structured and therefore struggled to know, for an employer to know where they were at and where they were going and mm. probably lost the mass appeal of it in doing so. But probably the biggest part and the reason why it was so successful and scaled so quickly was the investment we had. So a set of funds was set aside by HR teams to make that the capability of the day. And so you never had to go beg, borrow and steal to get your team of 20 people mm. sitting in an IT role to go through this course because it was just... The door, the door was already open for you. Brilliant. That's half the battle. Mm, agreed. Yeah, so it'd be really interesting to actually talk about your, your latest thinking around design thinking and Carol Dweck's growth mindset. I noticed that you gave a, a short talk at a conference on this recently. So it's an area maybe of a bit of passion of yours. Is this, yeah, what, what do you sort of see in terms of these two schools of thought marrying up? To so the paraphrase the kind of journey we went on or the aha moment that we come to, we uh, trained thousands of people in design thinking. That obviously gave them a toolkit to go away and do innovation. And we then had programs to make sure they had environments that they could practice using those tools. Uh, so we kind of ticked the box and said, our job's done here. We're going to become an entrepreneurial company and we're going to do innovation world class. We then realised there was this whole cohort of people who needed poking and prodding and <laughs> awakening 
in order to get there. So it didn't matter what toolkit you threw at. They were anchors for life and they really weren't sure of how to adapt this toolkit into them. We started doing some research. It was across, it took us six months, but we went to big tech companies who we admired their culture. We went to academics. We went to other corporates here in Australia to see how they were tackling the culture challenge of innovation before tackling the capability challenge. And we realised pretty quickly that other than a few big brands in the US, no corporate had really role modelled that order of delivery of their innovation programs. So culture first, then capability, mm-hmm. or at least an adjacency between them. Mm-hmm. And so we found Microsoft, we found SAP, and then we found, in the end, found the Professor Carol Dweck, whose work in growth mindset really transformed those organisations or kept them at the top of their game. Mm-hmm. So I stalked her and I stalked her research partners (laughs) and I was desperate to get them into CBA in some way, shape or form. And to make a long story short, eventually we're now at a stage where we've got what we believe is an Australian first mindfulness and mindset integrated program to stage interventions Mm. in people's career so we can really kind of poke and prod and wake up those in our workforce who don't necessarily see the value of innovation or haven't naturally had to do innovation as part of their job. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I'm, I'm, yeah, no, 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 I'm kind of sketching it out. I imagine it's like that awakening piece sort of sits at the top of the, before the awareness, before becoming sound, before becoming advanced. Yeah. Yeah. People actually need to be awake. So, you know, you obviously were at the time that you wanted to get that awareness you'd had that yeah. awakening and I yeah. think growth mindset, it's just, you know, highlighting to some people don't even realise that they're in a fixed mindset or what yeah. those kind of characteristics are and a lot of a lot of that I would imagine you probably found is, is also just a product of environment as much as it is of people's yeah. natural state. You know, it can right. be when you're working in highly regulated organisations and industries, people can just end up sitting on that sort of risk-adverse safe side of safe thinking, safe comfort place. It was me for the last four years of my career before I moved into innovation. In fact, mindset was the the actual instigator of me changing careers. Mm. I kind of sat in the same role. Working with corporates, doing something I perfectly enjoyed, but I could have done it with my eyes shut. And the mindset part was what actually uh, poked and prodded me and Mm. uh, pushed me into a different trajectory for my career. I think that actually leads perfectly into a question I've got here, though, is about, can you just give us a sort of a bit of background about that journey for you? So moving Mm. from working within the bank um, in a sales role, you've had a long career with CBA and then becoming interested in innovation then obviously taking such a senior role, leadership role within the lab. How did this all come about? Yeah, so I guess the first comment I make wasn't in by design. It was certainly something which was a bit of a serendipitous journey. So art student uh, wanted to be a journo, stumbled into banking, uh, have had 10 different roles along that weird and wonderful journey in banking. And then kind of towards the end of it, 18 months ago, uh, before the move into the innovation lab, I started to stumble across the Innovation Lab team, what their objectives were. And as I mentioned earlier in 
the interview when we set a strategy to partner more with other corporate brands and to use that as a channel to really drive partnered and collaborated innovation. I knew that was an area of strength for me. I'd have relationships with big brands right across mainly the eastern seaboard and I developed those relationships over many years and that was something that the lab team didn't necessarily have the same access to. Mm. So I called myself at the time the banker turned innovator where a lot <laughs> of the people that were already in the team were never before bankers or first-time yeah. bankers working in uh, for a bank uh, by virtue of being in the innovation space. So I think it was an, a natural marriage but I think once you work in the space, it just becomes, it's like a bug. You go to networking events, you research emerging technology, you run experiments, you're part of sprint teams, and very quickly um, you're in this day-to-day learning environment where no day is the same and mm. no network is the same. And so it's, I guess, A, it lends itself to the raw skills that I had regardless of not having a background in digital or IT or technology. But my strength was really on the other side, the cultural side, the leading innovation, the programming, the giving innovation a process, mm. all of those pieces. I think that the other huge advantage that you would have is is knowing the product space, space so well and knowing mm. the client base so well. So you'd sort of see those opportunities and those challenges and where there is, you know, room for improvement as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. rather than coming in sort of an, you know, an outsider and you're an insider, knowing the lay of the land and just learning, which is, again, why design thinking is so, you know, as a start, it's such a powerful methodology really because yeah. it's just that tool set, you know, did you, as you've touched on, once you've got that drive and that mindset to want to change something and want to make a difference and yeah. you start to open your eyes and see how things can change, it's yeah. really then just... Where, where? How do I get skilled up to actually do it? Exactly. Mm. And I, I wouldn't say wing it as you go because I certainly have some no. credibility, but yeah. the, uh, the learning curve in being an innovation team and the fatigue that you can potentially place yourself under is, uh, you know, I thought I used to work hard and I'm, I'm sure I did, but um, now not only do I love it and um, love it more than any other job I've had, but you just work tirelessly in this space, but you do so because you meet such amazing people and mm. learn so many new things every day. Yeah, brilliant. I think on that, given the journey that you've been on both from a personal perspective and also the work that you've done within the lab, it'd be really mm. interesting to hear your advice for certainly a number of our clients who are at the beginning of their innovation journey. So for, mm-hmm. for them, they've done potentially done some of that capability uplift. They're working on shifting the culture. That, that sort of strategy piece is, is probably the next step. But what, what is your advice? What do you think is critical in driving innovation in highly complex organisations? Yeah. Yeah, I think... Finding the right balance between having an organised strategic approach but then also getting your hands dirty and testing those strategies uh, and learning and not being stuck to them if they don't work, pivot or purge those ideas and move on to your next strategic initiative or strategic idea to drive innovation. Mm. And what I mean by that is so I am naturally fairly good at strategy. I know how to put strategy on a page. 
I know how to fix a strategic challenge by coming up with different initiatives to tackle that space. But sometimes, and my team will say this to me all the time because I ask them to challenge me on it, I get stuck in strategy mode and there's too many ideas cooking and not enough walking the talk on them to actually test if they're going to have any impact or not. Mm. And I've got this great balance in my team of experimenters who literally grab an idea of mine when it's very early on and get out and test it when I want it to look perfect and be perfect when, you know, they want it raw, rough and ready in order to kind of test it and then go back and make it perfect if it's got legs. So finding that balance is so important. The second part to it, I would say, is making sure you know where you want your innovation to come from. If I could show you a slide, I would show you. It's one of the most uh, uh, popular slides that I showed during keynotes. But imagine like a an arrow pointing up, an arrow pointing down, and an arrow pointing in. And there are three different ways in which innovation can come into your organisation. Mm-hmm. You could probably guess what each represents, but the, <laughs> the arrow pointing up is about bottom-up innovation. Yep. So ground spells of innovation where anyone can make it happen. Top down is, you know, CEO puts a whole bunch of smart people in a room to run an experiment on big data or blockchain mm-hmm. um, and it's quarantined. And then outside in is really about open innovation and getting others uh, and their innovation assets to innovate with you and for you. Like I said, we knew what stake we had in each of those trifectas, as I call them, Mm -hmm. and we really put a lot of investment into bottom-up innovation because we wanted to play the long game and we wanted to make innovation a homegrown thing, not something that's bought in from the outside, which Mm -hmm. we think doesn't have any sustainability or doesn't have a lot of sustainability to it compared to what we did. And if you've got that signed off from the top, like this is the way we want to do it or this is the percentage that we're applying to that channel, you can very quickly then go away and deploy programs and confidently know that it's linked to the top line strategy. Could you shoot us that slide and then we could include that in the transcript? Would you yeah, be all right sure. with that so then people can have that one? Yeah, go for it. Fantastic. Are there any, any other sort of trends that you're seeing or that you foresee in corporate innovation sort of outside, outside CBA, things yeah. that you're hearing about? What did we see in the US? We, everyone seems quite obsessed at the moment with entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. i.e. how do you turn, how do you drag corporate out of someone and instill entrepreneurial qualities and attitudes and traits in them? Yeah, one of our favourite uh, topics. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just such a complex topic and we're, you know, only really skimming the surface when we talk about growth mindset because it's about so much more than that. So we're or me personally and and parts of my team are taking a really long look, particularly in the academic ranks, at how you can actually undo the corporate kind of creatures that we've created to a certain extent uh, and refill that with, you know, childlike curiosity and courage and grit and determination that, you know, entrepreneurs all have and, because it all sits in the CQ and EQ world of intelligence and not, you know, technical intelligence, mm. it's so hard to work out what the killer blow is. But I think everyone that's trending right now in all the corporates we talk to, so many corporates are closely watching our experiment with growth mindset and want to do it themselves. So for me, this topic around human capital is the one that's hottest right now in the 
crowds that I surround myself with. Mm. But then again, you're a product of <laughs> you're certainly a product of your opinions, and I like to hang around those people. Um, I'd like to think a lot of corporates are thinking about that, so we all stay relevant in the innovation economy. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. Entrepreneurship's a huge area of focus definitely for us and work that we do as well. What what do you think anyone who's really serious about innovation should be reading or watching? Um, it's actually pretty simple. We actually had an event today. We, we started our journey by scanning YouTube and mm-hmm. stumbled across Dweck. We stumbled across Brené Brown. We stumbled across some new thought leaders that we didn't even know existed. So YouTube and TEDx was such a great source of easily consumable insights on how to drive innovation. So that would be my starting point. And then the rest is really about pounding the pavement and getting out networking in local communities. In the US, if you get to go to the US, VCs are amazing at sharing with you the latest and greatest fintechs and techs that you should be hearing about. Um, so there's some good buddies to have offshore. Mm. But, yeah, get out and about, develop your own network and word quickly gets around on, you know, opportunities to collaborate with other brands and um, what's trending and who you should look out for or who's a potential disruptor. But you can only do that if you get away from your desk. Get out of the building. Love it. Good closing advice. So the final question for you, Heath, is if you were going to do a TED Talk, yeah. what would it be on and why? <laughs> Jeez, you'd think this would be a, a quick response, but I literally <laughs> about a month ago wrote down 12 things that I'd love to be able to talk about. <laughs> narrowed it down and to 12. I love it. Narrowed it down to 12. We did one today, which I really liked, which was called, we called it Culture Killers. Mm. Uh, and rather than focusing on the positive things you can do in innovation, all of the things that can go wrong in innovation and how to manage the risk of them going wrong. And it was just a really raw, so rather than focusing on all the great news stories that you've put out, some of the, you know, lessons and war wounds that we wore on our innovation journey and everyone in the room was kind of sharing their own stories as well. So Mm. I kind of like that, even though I'm quite a positive person, we dipped our feet in the dark side for a an hour or so and it it was quite cathartic so I'd say that for now but there's lots of other ones that I'd love to get up and talk about polarity is my next obsession mm, actually. yeah that was your wide for wonder topic last year it was yeah so I'm obsessed with this concept of I'd even go to the extent of saying could we solve world peace <laughs> with <laughs> by chasing polarity meaning if I have a view on the world and I surround myself around others with that view because that's what we do as human beings. Mm-hmm. If I don't take any steps towards talking to, interacting with or researching someone with a polar opposite view as me, how are we ever going to resolve the big challenges or the big conflicts in the world is kind mm. of the space that I'm obsessed with. Yeah. So one day I'd hope, once I learn more about that space, to be able to uh, share that with the world through TEDx. That could just open up a whole nother can of worms. That could be a whole nother political podcast. We could go down the road now on that. <laughs> Very interesting. That massive topic at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's so relevant with everything I think that's going on in terms I of the marriage equality vote and Brexit and exactly. Trump and how all this kind of went down with that. 
yeah. That's where that exact I, it inspired kind of thinking. my thinking, the, yeah. the quality vote, because I yeah. watched people throwing grenades at each other from either end of the argument mm. and no one refused to budge, you know, one step inward to the other person's opinion. It's not to say it's because you have to change your opinion or accept their opinion, but you have to take the angst out of it, yeah. out of your viewpoint, and so I'm obsessed with it. Oh, so watch this space. Watch this space. We need another hour. Um, <laughs> brilliant. Thank you so much, Heath. I really appreciate it. Just to wrap up, I think I know mm. that the ComBank Innovation Lab is available to ComBank customers, so yeah. customers can come through. Are there any other ways that, you know, our listeners can, can engage with the space or...? So there's heaps of different ways. So you, we give, I guess, a premium experience to mm-hmm. customers that bank with us because yep. the value proposition is um, if you are loyal to us, we want to give you competitive advantage mm-hmm. by um, accessing our assets. Um, but if you don't bank with us yet and you want to explore what a day in the life of a CBA customer is like or being a CBA customer is like, absolutely have experiences that anyone can access. Mm. So probably the easiest way is to add me to LinkedIn and eventually I will get around to replying to all of them. I pride myself on that. Brilliant. Um, And just talking through who you are, what your interest is, and I can very quickly say, you know what, we've got stuff to share with you or that's not up our alley and and send you on your way. So Brilliant. Thank you very much. We'll add your details to the transcript of this as well. Um, yep. Not not your personal details, but any social media ones that people yeah, can yeah. access. So that's really generous of you. So thank you very much, Heath. No worries. Brilliant. And thank you so much for your conversation today and look forward to chatting with you soon. Cool. Thanks cool. a lot.